0: When I was an army chaplain, my soldiers asked me all kinds of questions about God, life, relationships, the Bible, and I answered them as best I could. They also called me Padre. Welcome to the Dear Padre podcast. I'm glad you're here today. Today we have a gospel lesson that we'll be exploring from the Gospel of Matthew. Chapter 15. Jesus left the place and went away to the district of Tyre and Sidon. Just then a Canaanite woman from that region came out and started shouting, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is tormented by a demon. But he did not answer her at all. And his disciples came and urged him, saying, Send her away, for she keeps shouting after us. the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. This story about Jesus and the Canaanite woman has so much packed into it, and it clashes so much with our modern sensibilities about who can approach God, ultimately. Uh, We in America today... Even those who uh, are more racist and more bigoted than others still somewhat recognize that it's wrong, or at least they shouldn't do it in all public places, most of them anyway. There is a general understanding that uh, sort of us and them, statements based on culture and race are unacceptable in public discourse uh, in ways that years ago were more acceptable and certainly in other places of the world are still being practiced today. And yet, the world that Jesus lived in had numerous delineations of who was acceptable for all sorts of relationships and who were not. We have read so much of the Old Testament uh, together here and I hope you've caught some of the nuances of what's happening with the Canaanites. The Canaanites are people that live in Canaan. They are a um, Semitic people's people, um, often delineated that way in archaeology and history. They were there when the people of God came out of Egypt and came back to the land of Canaan. And they were conquered by the Uh, people of God, under the leadership of Joshua and Moses before that. All chronicled in the book of Joshua and Judges. But all the Canaanites are not annihilated. Um, And many of them still live there, as the stories say. So this, um, what might be seen today as some sort of genocidal eradication of the Canaanites never really happened um, to the full extent that it was often described or at least told that the people of God were told to do. And so when the Canaanites are interacting with people, the people of God over and over again in the Old Testament, uh, we see them very much present in the narratives. But the term fades away pretty fast. As different peoples come in, the Philistines become the major opponent of the people of God, and they are the real nemesis and the reign of Saul and then King David and King Solomon and on and on. Other nations rise up, Assyria in the north and the Canaanites kind of fade away as a major threat to what's happening in the land of Canaan, which from which they are named. But here, hundreds and hundreds of years later after the Canaanites kind of fade from the scene, we have Matthew describing a Canaanite woman from the region of Tyre and Sidon. These are Phoenician cities by the sea traders and people that are going all over. Carthage becomes a Phoenician city and they eventually try to knock Rome off the top notch of, of the military might of the Mediterranean world. But here, Matthew describes her as a Canaanite woman. Um, certainly, she's called a Syro-Phoenician woman elsewhere. But this designation of Canaanite, um, I think can be seen uh, for what we can imagine it to be, that it is not a term of great respect. It is showing that she is not part of the covenant that the people of God are part of in the New Testament, at least in the beginning. The people of God, the Jewish people that Matthew is part of and Jesus is part of and other, the, all the other disciples are as well, Um, would have seen themselves as very different from the Canaanites or the Syrophoenician people entire inside. And yet we know that Jesus goes to that region to get away from his own people. And he is there crossing this border on the margins of his own community for purposes that we are not quite sure. Maybe he's on a vacation. Maybe he's there But ultimately, Jesus does things to enact the reign of God, to show what the kingdom of God is like. And so we have this beautiful picture of the kingdom of God in this encounter with a Canaanite woman here in Matthew. But she is not well. She is troubled. Her daughter has a demon, uh, tormented by a demon, demonized. Demon possession is not really a concept in the New Testament, although we talk about it that way, certainly in modern times. Um, But demon oppression and demonization is really what is happening. What are demons? It's hard to know um, fully to describe demons the way we describe plants and animals that we can see and feel and touch. But we know that there is always this element of self-destruction. I don't know if you've ever had to to care for someone that was self-destructive Um, Or maybe yourself, you've struggled with that as well. Um, We all do. There's a human propensity for this. And I think the power of the demonic is to enhance that, to give people some measure of control over their lives and the lives of others. But there is a self-destructive element from that that always has um, really awful effects on people's life and their comfort and their safety. And here, This girl is tormented by this demon and the mother knows it. Um, What did the Canaanite people or the people of Tyre and Sidon know about demons? Seems to be something that they are dealing with. Um, She knows about it and she knows about the covenant that God has made with David um, through the royal lineage and that Jesus is part of that. Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is tormented by a demon. And she is pleading for Jesus, screaming, shouting. And he walks right by her. And the disciples get upset at her and tell her to go away. They tell Jesus to tell her to go away. Um, and then Jesus answered, explains his ignoring of her. I was sent only the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So Jesus is saying what he is doing, what he's not doing. He is drawing a boundary line. We live in an age of boundaries. So he's ironic to me that it came from Focus on the Family, a notorious evangelical publisher and media empire that's still pretty operative and was part of the satanic panic and all the... The stuff that didn't let kids like me celebrate Halloween and other really, I think, bad things for Christianity and American life, but that was focused on the family, gave us the concept of boundaries by Henry Cloud and John Townsend's book, Boundaries, using the Bible to justify boundaries, remove not the ancient landmark, is I think the verse that it's based on, and yet it's entered into secular society now that most people go to the therapist and the therapist will help you set some boundaries. Not a bad thing. Boundaries aren't um, always a statement of hatred or animosity. They are just usually setting a limit of what you can do. And Jesus is doing that here. I was only sent for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she comes down and kneels before him again. This is an act of worship. And she knows that um, this is her only hope, that he is her only hope. So she gets down in the dirt. Lord, help me. It's not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. Jesus answers her when she pleads for help. It's not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. Jesus is doubling down on his line that he's drawn, that God has drawn. It's not strange that he primarily came to his own people. Um, it's not exclusive of other saying that God doesn't love everybody or anything like that. But he does use this word dog. Dog is not a compliment in the Bible world. We love dogs. They love dogs too back then, but they were much more practical about them, and um, dogs were not always seen in a great light as they were primarily scavengers and somewhat dangerous. And so this insult, which we might see as a racism by Jesus or some other insult, is again doubling down on the covenantal language uh, that he has been called to stick to. Um, Jesus is not a racist here. This is, um, that's a big stretch. But what, she, what he is saying is that the covenant uh, functions, the miracles of Jesus are, are part of his covenant work, that he is enacting the reign of God. And yet she knows something that Jesus knows too, but she reminds Jesus of. That even people like her Who are not part of the covenant can get the spillover that falls from the table that goes to the children. Um, It is not wrong to feed your children first um, before you go and help others. That is not a wrong thing to do. We must share, and there's always enough to share, and that's an important part of life and caring for others. But it's not wrong to feed your own kids before you go to the Trinity Center or somewhere to feed our homeless neighbors. Feeding your own kids is an important thing to do. And Jesus is saying that's what he's here to do. And this woman says, but even the puppies, the little dogs, they're scamper around the table. They are excited when people drop food. Drop some on me, Jesus. Drop some blessing. And that is her prayer. And Jesus says, woman, great is your faith. And it, she's healed immediately from this demon this encounter with this woman becomes a great Anglican prayer. We are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs from under thy table, but thou art the same Lord whose property is always to have mercy. Therefore, gracious Lord, and let us and then let us take communion. So this idea of we are not worthy that is in that prayer that some people don't really like, because it sounds like we're not worthy. It's think best interpreted in the Wayne's world. uh, We're not worthy. We're not worthy. Of course you're worthy. If you're saying you're not worthy, that's a statement of worth. And we are not worthy to gather up the crumbs, and neither was this woman, and nobody is. We are worthy because of what Jesus has done, and who Jesus is, and who God is, and God's grace that gives us second chances, and third chances, and seventh 70 times seven chances that God's grace is a deep well of love that is inexhaustible. We can never go to the end of it or find the bottom of it. God's grace is always overflowing and it is hard to believe that in this world that has consequences and karma and judgment and wrath and doesn't understand that God God's love is not limited by the human capacities that we carry with us. And so we ought to boldly ask for what God has promised us. We ought to be like this Canaanite woman who gets down in the dirt and says, I know you can do this. Let some of the crumbs fall to me. I don't know what crumbs you need from God this week, what little blessings that may be meant for others that need to come to you. But that is what we pray for, that God will give you those things because his capacity is always to have mercy, always to have mercy. God has mercy on you. God has mercy on us in the church. God is always pouring out God's mercy. And we have to claim it and thank and be thankful for it. That is the work of faith. It is not a work. It is simply receiving the love of God. And receiving it again after we fall. Receiving it again. That is the only way I've found to really live in this world. Because nobody, we're not perfect. Um, ultimately, we are people that um, fall and stumble and plead with God, help us, lift us up, heal the demons that oppress us, take them away. Give those that we love the things that they need for their life. We pray with this woman and this old Anglican prayer that Thomas Cramner wrote many years ago. We are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs from under thy table. I'm going to read it in full because I don't want you to miss it. Um, Since I quoted it wrongly before, Amen. The claim of this prayer starts that we don't presume to come to this thy table, trusting in our own righteousness, that we're not worthy to gather up the crumbs. But, but, this is the big shift, the property of the Lord is to always have mercy. So we are worthy. We can presume to come to this thy table, not because of our own goodness or greatness, but because of God's goodness in our life. This doesn't mean we can't be proud of the stuff we do and the stuff we accomplish and all that. Um, We're wonderful humans, all of you are. Um, But what it means is that this fundamental problem of approaching God in our unworthiness is solved by God, God's self. That God makes the way happen, just like Jesus did for this woman who in faith claimed the promise of God for her child's life and even for her life as well. This is what it is to live in faith, in the grace of God. So live that today. Live that today. Live boldly, knowing that you are loved by God with an inexhaustible and everlasting love, that there is nothing that can separate you from the love, love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.